chapter 17 and also 18 of 2 Samuel present the defeat of Absalom in what is an awful civil war. Blood is shed, people lose their lives, it is a time of tragedy in the nation. And yet, chapter 17 verse 14 has the text that is the key to both of these chapters. And it's not even the first part of the text, it is that second part of verse 14. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. This text is key. It reminds us again that God is actually against Absalom. And so if you turn across to chapter 18, you realize what happened in chapter 18 is because God has appointed these things. And so in chapter 18, verse number 6, we have the description of the battle that ensues. And so we know, of course, that now we'll see later on here that Absalom follows the counsel of Hushai. He brings the people together and Absalom himself leads the people to battle. Verse 6 of chapter 18. So the people went out into the field against Israel and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim. And when the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David and there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country. And the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And Absalom met the servants of David. Well, you know what follows here. Absalom, his hair is caught in the boughs of a great oak. And he hangs, he's taken up between heaven and earth. What follows also then in verse 14 and 15 is Joab finds Absalom, puts three darts through Absalom's heart. And the young men then smite Absalom and slew him. After Joab's deed. This all happens. Because God had appointed this to happen. Again chapter 17 verse 14. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Hithel. To the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. Tonight I want to do things a little differently. I want to give you some application at the very beginning. And then demonstrate where that comes from. And then come back to it again at the end. I suppose I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you it. And then I'm going to remind you what I told you. The application is really very straightforward. First of all, I encourage you tonight as we study this portion. To remember that the Lord God is working in human history. That principle is so important. You say, well, when does God work in human history? And I'd answer the question all the time. And then what does God work in human history? And of course the answer is in everything. At all times, in everything, God is working in human history. God is not distant, not afar off, but is near and intimately involved in the affairs of mankind. God himself is able to defeat good counsel. To bring about his own ends and his own purposes dear people you are not sovereign over your lives god rules and reigns in the affairs of mankind secondly it is worth noticing that the lord who works is the lord who works in sovereign wisdom the lord chastens his children in perfect wisdom parents can be overly severe or overbearing 
They can fall foul of errors when it comes to their chastening of their children. But God chastens his children perfectly. And he chastens David here, but he does so in a way that would not go so far as David losing the throne. We know that all that's happening here, Absalom's rebellion, is in fulfillment of God's word to David through Nathan following his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And yet God has come to the point, this is enough, at least in this particular respect. And his chastening comes to an end. God is wise in all of his dealings with mankind. He's a purpose. He understands what is needed, what is right, and what is wise. And he does not tempt his children beyond what they can bear by his grace. So the Lord is working, and he is working in perfect wisdom. And as he works in perfect wisdom, thirdly, we see them working in wisdom to fulfill his will. What is it that is controlling, if you like, God's chastening of David? Well, you say, well, it is his loving kindness, and I would say amen to that. It is his mercy, that in wrath he remembers mercy. But what also controls his actions here is God's determination to do his will and to fulfill his purposes. He keeps his promises. You see, the God who works in human history works in wisdom in such a way that he fulfills his perfect will. God has promises to David that will not fail. David will be on the throne, will pass the throne to his son in order that Messiah will come from the throne of David. It is impossible for Absalom's rebellion to succeed. Because God is sovereignly keeping his word, working out his own purpose and will for his kingdom. And so verse 14 is yet another text in the word of God that underscores the sovereignty of our God, sovereign over the affairs of mankind, but wisely working out his will for his glory. And so as we explore this particular theme tonight, and really, Verse 14 is going to continually be our text tonight. I want you to see, first of all, that God's working is a working in the background of history sometimes. God sometimes works in very visible fashion. If you're standing on the Red Sea, you're not wondering how this comes about. It's a visible display of the power of God in withholding the waters of the Red Sea to allow the people to pass. Same thing's true for the Jordan when they cross the Jordan into Canaan. And so there are times when God works in a very visible fashion, but God is also a God who works invisibly in the background of human history. And one comment here says this, invisible is okay so long as God is there. That is a test of our human faith. Are we content to trust in God's invisible hand? You see, when you examine verse 14 of chapter 7 or chapter 17, what you must understand here is that God is doing all of this and the people are completely unaware. They don't know what's going on. And there's proof of that. Hushai does not know if his counsel is accepted or not. 
He's no evidence to say that God has worked in such a way that he's been able and successfully able to undermine the counsel of Ithithel. Matthew Henry points this out and it's very, very helpful. He makes the observation that what happens after verse 14 is evidence that Hushai did not know that he had succeeded. Doesn't get it. He goes on to give counsel and he gives counsel as if Ahithophel's counsel has been accepted. He tells David, this is what Ahithophel said, this is what I've said, and so to prevent Ahithophel's plan being successful, run quickly. And so he does. David runs quickly. So you've got to ask yourself an important question. Why? Why? Does Absalom call for Hushai in verse 5 of chapter 17? Makes no sense. Just think about it for a moment or two. Hushai, back in chapter 16, has already come to Absalom with some degree of suspicion. You're a friend of David. What are you doing here now? I believe Absalom takes Hushai's word that he comes and he's happy to turn coat as Ahithophel was. Yes, I accept that. But look what it says in verse 23 of chapter 16. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired of the oracle of God. He was held in such high regard. And it's not even that Absalom hears what he says and thinks to himself, I'm not so sure about that. The counsel is wise. Verse 14 tells us it's good counsel. He says, basically, let's catch David now with a surprise attack when he's weary and weak-handed. And we'll just get the king. And you'll get all the rest to come and the kingdom will be yours. And verse 4, the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. So what on earth happened for them to then say, well, oh, maybe not. Is it just a case, well, Hushai's here, we may as well use him when he's here. Is that what's going on here? We just call him across and say, well, Hushai, what do you think of all this? I have no idea. But Hushai, I think, very wisely appeals to Absalom's pride. Absalom is not directly involved in Hithophel's counsel. But when you get to verse number 8, Hushai begins his address And he directly addresses Absalom. Absalom, thou knowest. It's this idea, Absalom, you have insights of your own that that should make you question and wonder what Hithil is all about. And in fact, when he goes on to deal with his own plan to gather all Israel together, a huge army to overthrow David, it says there in verse number 11, and that thou go to battle in thine own person. You know how valiant David is. No hope of succeeding with a surprise attack. You've got to overthrow him with numbers. And as you do so, why don't you take the head? After all, you'll get all the glory. And while you're at it, let's come with such numbers like the Jew upon the ground. Let's come with such numbers that we won't leave one of them alive. We'll bring vengeance. You want vengeance, Absalom? We'll bring vengeance. Let's not just kill David. But let's kill all those who rebelled against your rule. And so Absalom buys into that plan. 
But why did he ask him in the first place? Oh, we can see why Absalom in his pride may well accept Hushai's counsel. But why does he ask him in verse number 5 to begin with? Well, we know. It's verse 14. For the Lord. That's all. That's all we need to know. We need to know that God has worked invisibly in the background here. And he's done his good purpose for his glory. You see, more often than not, says one commentator, more often than not, that is the manner of God's work. His scepter is unseen. His sovereignty hidden behind the conversations and decisions and activities and crises of our lives. We see only grocery lines and diaper chains and school assignments, but through and over and behind it all, Jehovah rules. He is not absent, but neither is he obvious. This is the God of the Bible. So hidden is God's sovereign action in this time. Is, as I said, Hushai doesn't even know if his advice would be taken. This is God's unseen work. We need this reminder. You need this reminder. I need this reminder at all times. See, please turn to Job 23. For Job wrestles with the fact that he cannot discern the hand of God. There is this recognition with the man of faith that at times we cannot see God's hand. And so Job 23 as he deals with his own circumstance, and you know something of Job's story, the loss and the tragedy that marks his life. Verse number 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. You see, the language here is of the recognition That God's hand is invisible. But please note in verse number 7. As he refers to God's left hand. He acknowledges God's left hand is where he works. These are not statements of unbelief. But an honest confession. I do not see what God is doing in my life at this time. But I know he's doing something. And so verse number 8. But he knoweth the way that I take. The word knoweth there is connected to the Hebrew verb to see. It has a sense of whilst I cannot see God, I know that he sees me. He sees my way and when he tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I know that God is working with his invisible hand. And whilst it is a challenge to live in the light of God's invisible providences, The fact we cannot see it should not unsettle our confidence. It is enough for God to be invisible so long as he's there. That should be the disposition of heart of every single child of God. A gladness to allow God to do his sovereign, perfect, wise will. Even in the background of our lives. God's working is in the background of history at times. Secondly, God's working is by using human agency. You see, the Lord's work here is not removed from the human instrumentality of this account. The Lord uses Hushai and others to defeat Absalom. 
Yeah, Absalom loses the battle here. We see that in chapter 18. And the reason he loses the battle is because he follows Hushai. But Hushai's actions are full of espionage and subterfuge, spies and messengers and all manner of things. Hushai, chapter 16, verse 16, is less than wholly transparent. Chapter 16, Absalom comes and meets with Hushai. Hushai comes to Absalom. Hushai says, God save the king. God save the king, verse 16. And then Absalom says, Hushai, is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? And Hushai says, nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be and with him will I abide. That's not transparent. It is very clear in the narrative that Hushai is very much loyal to his friend David. And yet when he comes before Absalom, I'm on your side, Absalom. I'm one of your guys now. Chapter 17. We see Hushai continuing in that vein. The counsel that Hithel hath given is not good at this time. Again, Hushai can rationalize in his own mind all manner of things. It is not good because it would bring the defeat of his king David. And he can say, yes, it is not good. But he knows rightly it's very good when it comes to Absalom's side. And so you find here, here's Hushai. He's undercover. He's undercover as a servant of David. But he's in Absalom's court. And he's deliberately leading Absalom to his ruin. I've said already, he does not know whether he succeeds or not. We know that. But his purpose, his intent is to lead to Absalom's ruin, not his success. And yet God hath appointed Hushai to defeat the good counsel of Ithithel. It's also the case that when the two lads, Jonathan and Ahimehaz, when they hear the news from Hushai, well, from Zadok and Abiathar, remember this, this whole, this, this group of people who are willing to work for David, when the lads hear this, they run, and they jump down the well, the well is covered, the woman says, eh, no man here. And this idea of deception as a means of success in warfare. Now here, we have just yet another example of the biblical understanding of the ethics of war. The midwives of Egypt. You have Rahab with the spies in Jericho. And it seems to be the case that there is indeed permission given for sleight of hand and pretense when it comes to military warfare. God himself tells the army when they come to defeat Canaan, Tells the army at times, pretend to go this direction. But actually, you're not going to go this way. You're going to pretend to go that way because you're going to come this way. So that's the ethics of war. But my point here is not to recommend actions. It's not to suggest for a second that you can rationalize uh, your, your own duplicity when it comes to these things. That's not the point. We're very quick to rationalize deception. But what you see in verse number 14 is that whatever is happening here, God is working. Men act freely. Their motives here are certainly for the glory of God and for the good of David's kingdom. But God is working through human agency. 
And God is not hindered by man's action. Rather, the Lord is pleased to overthrow, or sorry, the Lord is pleased to overrule strange actions, even sinful actions, to bring about his will. I don't say this is easy to understand, but it's what the Bible teaches. From Joseph's brothers to Jesus' cross, sinful acts, strange acts are used to bring about God's eternal will. That should give comfort, not confusion. Life brings much confusion. Why would they say that? Why would they do that? What could possibly be happening here? What could what good could come out of all of this? God is more than able to bring out good in the confusion of this sinful world. He's a God that works through using human agency. Thirdly, he is a God who works in sovereignly protecting his cause. Again, back to verse 14. The Lord had appointed to defeat, to bring evil upon Absalom. See, when you read, and we've thought this several times in this study, when you read 2 Samuel, you see that David's kingdom is the appointed, anointed kingdom of God. He is God's choice, and his kingdom is the kingdom that will not cease to exist. And so what you see in the narrative at times is you see God protecting his servants and overthrowing his enemies. Just the detail, just one verse is given to Ahithophel's downfall. Verse 23. Again, we're not told the reason behind it all. Likely, Ahithophel understands that when Hushai's counsel was adopted, then Absalom was doomed, and Ahithophel would more than likely be executed as a traitor. And so he speeds that process up in tragedy. But what we do know again, it is the Lord in verse 14 that appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is accountable for his actions, for his disloyalty to David, for his self-murder. He's accountable for all of these things. But we should not miss the point again, as difficult as it may be, that God is sovereign over that circumstance. Because God protects his kingdom and his cause. It's just one more account in the multiplied accounts of the word of God that God is committed to his kingdom, his glory. I was reading Joshua 5 yesterday. And you have the account as Joshua stands and looks over Jericho. The Lord God comes. Joshua worships this individual that comes to him. It is the captain of the host with the sword drawn. And it's a reminder again that when the Son of God comes in this earth, he comes as a warrior, as a kingdom ruler, who is indeed going to bring all things about for the glory of his kingdom. And we think of Jeremiah this morning. They shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee. We see God continually protecting his kingdom. Why? Well, please look at Daniel chapter 2. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 and you will see that God in his word is consistently committed to preserve his kingdom. 
And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you have here Daniel chapter 2, the interpretation of Daniel. After the description of the four kingdoms, all these kingdoms, and verse number 20, or verse number 44 of chapter 2. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now that's describing the coming of Messiah. Again, many people get confused with Daniel. They think of Daniel as still predicting things to come. Predominantly, Daniel deals with the first coming of Christ. And the kingdoms between Daniel and Christ's first coming. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Second Samuel 17 is underscoring that principle. That God preserves his kingdom purposes and no Ahithophel or no Absalom can undermine the purpose of God. His kingdom is indestructible. You know, Gamaliel's counsel in Acts 5 in some ways isn't the best of counsel. You know, there's this trouble. These disciples are raised up. They're going to stir up the nation and give trouble. And Gamaliel simply says, well, let's just do nothing and see what happens. But whilst that's not good counsel in the face of heresies and errors, yet the principle is still true. Refrain from these men and let them alone. For this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. Gamaliel understood Daniel chapter 2. The futility of trying to fight against the Lord. You see, there are, I said this last week, there are just two kingdoms in this world. There is the true kingdom of Christ. And there is the kingdom of Satan, under which comes every other kingdom. Just two kingdoms. And there is an event in human history that confirms the identity of the one true indestructible kingdom of God. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, please turn to Acts chapter 2. You see, so how, how would I know what the true kingdom is that cannot be destroyed? And how would I identify the false kingdom? It's just your opinion. Here you've got a Bible and you say this is the true kingdom. But how would I possibly know? Well, in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes the point that Christ's resurrection is into this kingdom. And so you have the verse number 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Now that's example that quotation from Psalm 110 is also taken by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The portion of scripture, Psalm 110, is a portion of scripture that proves and testifies to the indestructible kingdom of Christ Jesus. But that kingdom is a kingdom that Christ has ascended to in his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, verse number 31. This Jesus hath God raised up. 
And so at a point in time of human history, God stepped in, not invisibly this time, but visibly in front of many witnesses. And he brought Christ from the dead. And then Christ leaves this earth and he ascends to the right hand of God and he reigns there. And his reign is an indestructible reign until all his foes are put under his feet. And we know we expectantly wait for that kingdom to come in Christ's return. For the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so when Christ comes and there is resurrection, then there's the public manifestation of the truthfulness of Christ's kingdom. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that great day, there'll be no doubts. But I'm telling you right now, you do not need to doubt tonight. Christ Jesus died and rose again. And the Bible explains that for us. He rose to the throne of David to an everlasting kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 17. Uh, Hethethel's counsel is defeated because Acts 2 is true. David's kingdom is an eternal kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus Christ is the son of David ascending to David's throne. God sovereignly works in protecting his cause. The almighty, eternal God protecting his kingdom. Who's your king tonight? Are you along with the Hithel? Well, for a time you thought, well, perhaps David's the best one to choose. But now it's time to turn. I'm going to follow Absalom's kingdom. You know, there are only two true kingdoms. And I say to you tonight, choose you this day whom you will serve. The Lord God, or the God of this world. God works in protecting his cause. Fourthly, God works finally, very briefly, in providing for his kingdom. Heading back to 2 Samuel chapter 17. You have some of the details in the preparation for the battle regarding Absalom making Amasa the captain of the host. Again, there's interesting detail regarding Ithra and the conflict that will come between Absalom and Joab. Again, Joab acting in the death of Absalom. But however, when you get to verse number 17, you find that David comes to Mahanaim and he meets Shubi, Machir, and Barzillai. Shubi is likely an Ammonite, not part of the covenant people of God. Machir, according to 2 Samuel 9, is one of Saul's men, historically. Barzillai is an aged but wealthy man. And what you see is this triad of individuals. They come, and God has worked in their wallets as well as in their hearts. And they are pleased to show their loyalty to their king. And so you turn to verse number 28 and 29, and you have a wonderful shopping list of needs for a people determined to win a battle. Beds and basins. Honey and butter. Just to name a few. These men. They risk their lives to show their loyalty to the king. You can't kind of smuggle these things discreetly. This is a public display of loyalty to David. At a time when David is not popular in the kingdom. And yet they're prepared to show their loyalty to their king. 
I use this simply to illustrate the point. That on earth God's kingdom is provided for. As God sovereignly works in the heart of man. Producing within them a loyalty to Christ. No matter the cost. That's what the church is. It's a band of believers who are loyal to Christ. And are willing to sacrifice all for Christ. No matter the cost. They'll give whatever's necessary. For the honor of Christ's name. Such a view of Christianity may not be so common in these days. But it is the view of Christianity in the Bible. That no matter how things or how grim things seem to be for Christ. His disciples are brave and sacrificial and loyal. And so promote and provide for the well-being of the kingdom. That is God sovereignly working. I didn't expect to enjoy chapter 17 as much as I did. Monday morning. I had a Monday morning issue Monday morning. I thought, I've got to deal with 2 Samuel 17. Oh, there's buried treasure here, isn't there? Our God is on the throne. His kingdom is forever. And no enemy can overthrow the kingdom of our Christ. And that's why I say to you, Remember the Lord is working in history. At all the time, in everything. He's working according to his perfect wisdom. And he's fulfilling his perfect will for the honor and glory of his name. Let's worship and bow before our great God. There is no God like our God. Let's bow together please in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we come before thee tonight and we thank you, dear Father, for these nuggets of gold buried in your word. Again, the reality that as we think of this time of human history, time so removed from our experience, yet, O oh God, you're the same today as you were then. And you're the God that rules the affairs of mankind. Help us to trust in you. Even as Luther said of old, help us to trust your hand, even when we cannot trace it. Oh Lord, we thank you that those of us who know Christ were on the Lord's side. And Christ is on our side. Oh dear Father, we pray you'd help us to walk humbly and to serve Christ with loyalty. Oh Lord, bless our hearts. Thank you for a risen and ascended Redeemer. He who died and rose again the third day sits now at your right hand, and he reigns until his enemies are made his footstool. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, God, we worship, we praise your name tonight. Bless and encourage our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen.